Greetings, Anthro Heads. Welcome to A Story of Us, a podcast created by the anthropology graduate students at The Ohio State University. This podcast is dedicated to the many perspectives that anthropology brings to the study of our humanity and beyond. I am your host, Shane Skaggs, and you are listening to the final installment of our engagement series, where we are thinking about the application of anthropological research. Today, I am joined by Dr. Aaron Moore, who is the Carl F. Asaph Assistant Professor in Anthropology and the History of Medicine. Dr. Moore is a sociocultural and medical anthropologist who brings a critical humanist perspective to the study of global health, disease, and development. Dr. Moore has conducted research in sub-Saharan Africa and with transnational non-governmental bureaucracies and is currently investigating the gendered political economic history of Uganda's devastating HIV epidemic. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Moore. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. So we like to ask everyone that comes on the show this one question. What is your personal definition of anthropology? A surprise question. Great. (laughs) Um, My definition of anthropology is the study of people both at the population scale, right? So how groups of people act and have lived and continue to live, as well as at a more intimate level. So just how individuals and families, um, you know, live with each other. And uh, yeah, that'd be my definition. That's awesome. And that is something that no one so far that I've talked with has brought up, this, these different scales that anthropology operates at. So tell us a little bit about your journey to anthropology. What is your sort of origin story as an anthropologist and as a researcher? So I didn't know that anthropology was something you could pursue as a career until I got to college. And I was interested in child development and in young people. So I took a class called Youth in Ethnographic and Historical Perspectives. And I really liked my instructor, Jennifer Cole, who became my undergraduate advisor and eventually my graduate school advisor as well. And during office hours one day, it it clicked for me that she actually went to Madagascar and she actually worked with people and talked to people and had learned to speak with people there. And I kind of asked her, I said, wait, so you actually, you go to Madagascar, you study people. And she said, yeah, I sure do. And pointed me to a photo album and let me kind of look through what had been her fieldwork experience there. And that was just this transformative moment for me. And I thought, well, yeah, I should probably do this too. I also want to learn about the world by talking to people. And so that's what started me on my journey. I worked on an undergraduate thesis with young women who were in a leadership program in Brooklyn that and continued to explore questions of child and youth development from anthropological perspectives. Um, and then that focus kind of brought me to graduate school where I was looking at those questions at a more international scale. Something that you mentioned in your story that is super cool commonality that comes up in in this question is that you sort of found anthropology, you know, like you weren't necessarily looking for it, and that you had a mentor that was important in, you know, had it played a crucial role in you becoming an anthropologist. So you mentioned just a second ago, you know, some of your international work. So why why don't you tell us a little bit more about your research interests and the places where you've conducted field work and the people that you work with? 
I think at the broadest level, I could say that I'm interested in how the structural conditions in which people are growing up and in which people live shape their health, um, their well-being, their everyday lives, their relationships. And by structural conditions, I mean a lot of things, right? I mean the political context in which they live, their economies, kind of the big macro level stuff, um, how that gets embodied at the individual level is really my is really my question across all of my research. And so I, I describe myself as conducting research in two places. So um, the country of Uganda, which is a landlocked country in East Africa on the shores of Lake Victoria, very beautiful place. Um, I think there are about 40 million people there now. And then I also work with the kind of transnationally mobile, internationally mobile people and organizations that constitute the global health industry, the international development industry. So in addition to working in Uganda, I've worked in, I'd say, conference rooms and kind of hotel ballrooms in a bunch of different countries at the UN, often with the same people, but just in different locations. So this is kind of a, a, a you know, a mobile site that I, that I work in as well. So I work with kind of elite cosmopolitan, internationally traveling NGO officers, um, doctors, experts. And then I work with the people in whose lives they seek to intervene. For my book manuscript, the women who are at the center of that are young women who grew up in the sprawling slum on the outskirts of Kampala, which is Uganda's capital city. And they were teenagers when we first met, but of course it's been 10 years since I first met them. So they've you know, they have children now and are running businesses and things like this. So, you know, my work really taps between these elite, these elite kind of cosmopolitan spaces and then um, this kind of small scale um, network of, of young women who came out of very poor circumstances in Kampala. I think it's really cool that there's a place-based portion of your work, but there's also a very mobile sort of roaming portion of your work. And it's a great strength of anthropology that we do things at field sites and, and in places. But I think it's worth you know emphasizing that anthropology also engages with a lot of these transnational, very you know moving target kinds of um, groups that have effects in places. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, um, you know, of course, the classic anthropological field work is to kind of go as far away as you can and stay there for a year or two and then come back. And, you know, this old adage, you know, we're going to make the strange familiar and the familiar strange is wonderful because you are supposed to be totally transformed by that experience. And then you bring that knowledge back to reflect on the things that have become the things that are normal or the, the, you know, the ways that we live, you know, here in the United States or North America and what you have learned is supposed to kind of teach you that those things don't have, aren't natural, but they don't have to be normal. So I love that part of anthropology. Um, but I think that, you know, as the world has gotten increasingly global, as people have started moving more around the world, anthropologists too have to follow people. And actually, so my, my book manuscript follows a campaign. So, you know, you asked me about the people that I work with, but I also am not just interested in people, but also like an actual object and how that circulates the globe. So I looked at um, a campaign 
that wanted to intervene in the lives of girls or, you know, these, the global girls empowerment movement, right? So the idea that if you empower a girl, that she's the silver bullet solution to global poverty. So that idea started at the World Bank. It started at the UN. It started with NGOs in North America. Um, But in order to get to a place like Uganda and into the lives of the women that I worked with, it had to go through many different channels, many different organizations and many different people. And, you know, each at each site was translated differently along the way. It's almost like a game of telephone, right? What happens when it gets finally to the place that it ends up? And anthropologists are particularly well-suited to, to study those kinds of movements of, of campaigns or of objects or of medicines. Or... Yeah, so I did my master's at an applied anthropology program. And I remember a little bit from the uses of anthropology course that we discussed these development programs and I remember thinking, you know, at, at, on the face of it, it seems like programs focused on women's empowerment, they seem like this virtuous thing. Who couldn't support that? But as your work suggests, and as some of our conversations went on, it's really quite a bit more complicated and nuanced than that. So can you talk us through a little bit some of the ways that NGOs operate and the in- intended and unintended effects that development programs can have on the people that whose lives they're intervening in. Yeah, definitely. And I love and I love that question, right? Because when you, you know, I identify as a critical medical anthropologist and who could be critical of programs that want to empower girls? How could you possibly say that there's something wrong with empowering girls all over the world? Um, it's it's I mean, it's almost foolproof in how kind of apolitical and innocent the you know intervention is is supposed to supposed to be. But so, so I kind of come at it critically in two different ways. So one is by thinking about the logics of why we're targeting girls as the silver bullet solution to global poverty. And the second is, you know, what happens when these programs start to travel and what happens to the money that's intended for adolescent girls and young women? Because um, it, you know, has to go through many different organizations, as I was saying before, and many different people before it actually gets to the people that it targets. But so first of the logics... It seems like that campaigns to empower adolescent girls are voiced in the language of gender equality, right? Girls have an equal right to schooling. That's often the way that those campaigns are presented. But if we look at where the idea that we should be intervening in girls started, it, it started in 1992 with Lawrence Summers, who at the time was the chief economist of the World Bank. And he published a paper in Scientific American that made the economic case for investing in girls. And we might ask, why would Lawrence Summers, who, when he was at Harvard, famously, or I think infamously said that women are not as good at math as men, right? I mean, he's not he's not some champion for gender equity. Why is he so interested in girls and in educating them? When you look at his work, and this is detailed um, in a wonderful book by the feminist historian Michelle Murphy called The Economization of Life. When you look at these logics or what he was actually arguing it the idea behind schooling girls is really about fertility control at the end of the day so you have these campaigns that are about educating empowering girls with economic opportunities that are ultimately designed to give a payout to give economic dividends on the basis of controlling fertility while there's no provision of reproductive health services there's a big gap in the middle of the idea that schooling a girl will create like national macroeconomic growth and what happens to the actual girls 
So those are the logics. In terms of how these campaigns get translated and what happens to the, to the money, and this is, I think, maybe one of the unintended effects. Um, I think one of the things that I found was not just in Uganda, all over the world, the development industry has moved from a kind of charitable model where you can give money directly to individual beneficiaries for things like school fees. But that has shifted to a more sustainable development model, the idea that you must give monies to already existing organizations because you can't control what happens when you give money to beneficiaries. And because if local organizations are running the programs, they will last longer. So both the state of Uganda and also the international development industry are both insisting that locally registered NGOs get money from international NGOs, get money from international donors. So what I found was that this paradigm of sustainable development meant that all of these monies, billions of dollars in resources for adolescent girls, ended up getting kind of siphoned off into these organizations that were all run by young middle-aged men. And so you had, you had a situation where men who, you know, formerly evangelical preachers who were running, you know, all kinds of organizations started doing girls' empowerment work and started running vocational training schools for girls and were kind of at the front of this movement to empower girls. And ironically, they were trading a lot of the money and the resources and the access to opportunities for sex, which was actually kind of the goal of the girls' empowerment movement in Uganda is really to move women out of the transactional sexual economy. I mean, men were empowered with the resources of NGOs behind them to trade money for sex. Um, so it's this paradox of, you know, what can happen when you don't give money directly to the people who need it, I think. And, you know, going back to your definition of like these different scales, there's something of a mismatch of scale where the NGOs working at this huge scale, looking for ways to think, make things more sustainable immediately, like, oh, here's an organization that's going to last, we can focus it here. And in reality, it becomes this gatekeeping situation, right, that reinforces some of the existing political and power structures that are already there on the ground. Right, absolutely. And, you know, this, I don't want to make the case that it's because of corruption in Uganda or whatever, that this is why this is happening. A lot of this is because of internationally designed paradigms that um, kind of force the sustainability model on folks. And that doesn't mean that there aren't wonderful feminist organizations that are doing really great work. Um, my master's thesis, I, I, I wrote a critical paper about some of the work that a feminist organization was doing, but they weren't asking girls for sex to participate in their program for, at, the very, at the very minimum, you know? Well, here, let me give you another example. So I, I worked with an international NGO, major multinational NGO, that had the practice of bringing young women and young people from Uganda and from all over the world to the UN, to New York, to participate in advocacy events, right? And so, uh, and and so sometimes these young women would like take over M Melinda Gates' Instagram page, or you know, it's all about the advocacy. So, you know, I watched Ugandan NGO officers hustle really hard to get. Uh, visas for young women to travel, and then they would travel with them as chaperones. Meanwhile, these are extremely educated women who are lawyers who see the opportunity to travel as an opportunity to participate, you know, at the global level at the UN, but really they're just kind of chaperoning a, a young person. And then by the time they bring these 
young people back, they are abandoned by the organization because the organization can't give them money directly for school fees. So in 2013, I was with you know, a 13-year-old girl who was kind of speaking on behalf of the rights for adolescent girls. And two years later, there was no money for her to go to school. And because this organization has shifted away from like an individual beneficiary school fee model, you know, there was no way to kind of get her the funds that they need. That being said, people are doing really interesting things to work within these rules to get people what they need and to get what they need. So for example, some of the young people that I worked with would go and would go to NGO meetings and, you know, they would lie and say that they were sex workers or, you know, they would, they would show up though because you get paid a participant fee for going to the, for going to the NGO meeting. And then they would take this money and kind of put it back into their businesses, um, you know, that they were trying, you know, they were trying to start. So they were participating in this small NGO that was encouraging them to develop these like entrepreneurial businesses Uh, You know, whether it was like hair plating or, you know, tailoring or electronics, stuff like that. But the, because the organization couldn't give them any money, they could never start these businesses unless they went to these bigger NGO meetings that gave them participant stipends. And, and, you know, by lying and saying they were like victims of something or whatever, and then they would kind of go back and start the businesses that they couldn't just apply directly for capital to start. Is there a potential future model or future arrangement that might work better? Like what, what would we do to, to alter this arrangement to make it work? Yeah. Um, so I get asked this question a lot and often it comes in terms of, you know, well, NGOs are not going anywhere, right? NGOs are here to stay. So how can we, how can we make the model better? But I would answer that by saying, you know, NGOs are not that old, right? They've only been here since like the mid 20th century. And, you know, Catholic charitable models, for example, like missionary charitable models go back way farther. But the the contemporary like sustainable development stuff that we have going on, contemporary NGO forms, like they're just not that old. And so there's no reason to think that they will be around forever or that they have to be. I think a lot about basic income models that are, you know, really successful in South Africa and Scandinavia. We talk about basic income in the United States as well. Um, there's a great book by James Ferguson, who's you know one of the preeminent anthropologists of development, called "Give a Man a Fish," right? And it's it's the book is all about kind of challenging the idea that we have to funnel money through through NGOs. He's challenging the idea that for some reason the poor don't know what to do with money um, or with resources should they get them. In Belize, where I work, they talk about. Uh, mostly projects that Peace Corps volunteers want to do. They basically work in the sense that the projects get off the ground, but they're usually co-opted by whatever is actually happening in the village, whatever they need to use, right? Sometimes it's Mm -hmm. very power oriented. You know, some folks have a lot of power to use or take stuff and and use it for their benefit. Um, But I think the other point is that people are strategic. They they have goals. They know what they want to use their money for. It doesn't always align with what the project thinks they ought to do, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that once they get it, they aren't strategically capable of using it however they need to for their own life, set of livelihoods. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and the basic fact is that people need money, right? People need resources. And so however they can get it, it, that's what's important here, right? And I think especially projects that are 
um, less about resource distribution and more about rights or culture change or whatever, there's this idea about pedagogical change, right? That people need to be taught what to do with the resources that they're getting. And so I think the real key is to erase this idea that, that there's some kind of transformation that will happen through pedagogy. I feel like that is uh, super critical of like a lot of work that a lot of people are doing. Uh, so it's a pretty broad statement that I sure has lots of exceptions to, but I do think that in, in, in my experience, what I've seen is that people need less pedagogy, more money, more resources. And so I think that challenging the NGO model or the idea that people need to learn to change themselves before they become acceptable recipients of resources is the goal. I'll cheers to that. So moving in a a little bit of a different direction, you recently co-authored the introduction to a special collection on gender panics in Anthropological Quarterly. So can you tell us a little bit about what a gender panic is and how it's related to the global political economy. So my co-author, Jennifer Cole, who is my mentor, as we talked about before. So we wrote this together and it came from, I was doing work on gender panics in Uganda and several other of Jennifer's students and kind of colleagues of ours were noticing similar kinds of upset around women's sexuality and women's access to resources. So I'll give you an example. What I was seeing were crises over this practice called detoothing. Um, and so to pull teeth or to pull a man's teeth is to take his money without giving him his end of the transactional sexual deal. So it's the idea that women are promising sex, getting money, but then never delivering on on sex. And people were going absolutely, I mean, people are continue to go kind of absolutely berserk about this because well, for a number of different reasons. And in my work, I'm reading it as a reaction to the invented tradition that men have patriarchal rights to women through bride wealth payments, right? So in central Uganda, men typically pay for, you know, they pay a price for a bride. And the way that the custom has been documented and created through combination of anthropological work and, you know, local experts have colluded to invent this tradition around the idea that a woman like belongs to a man, like her children belong to a man, that her labor belongs to a man once she's paid for. So in my case, I was thinking about D2 thing as kind of challenging this notion, right? Because women were able to get money, but they weren't really giving over what they what they said they were going to give over. That's the Ugandan case, but more broadly, a gender panic, we're borrowing from this idea from Stanley Cohen, who's a British criminologist writing in the early 70s when there was all kinds of social change uh, among young people. And so he had this idea of a moral panic that societies kind of flared up around, uh, you know, the youth or delinquency. And this was actually a way for society to, for society and the state to kind of get more power. It was kind of like a social valve. And so the state would get more power um, around the panic. And um, so we've taken this idea and thought about how a, a gender panic is really like when society gets upset over the terms of social reproduction, i.e. how society reproduces itself, i.e. how families reproduce themselves, and at the center of that are women, right? So it's we define gender panics as kind of these flare-ups around 
seeming losses of patriarchal control, um, however real or actual or, you know, that, that patriarchal control ever was. So I was just describing like the bridewell practice as an invented tradition, right? So um, whether or not that, whether or not that patriarchy was like really there, um, it gets kind of invoked as if it, as if it were, and people have, uh, you know, flip out about it. So in our, in our special issue, we were talking specifically about, um, cases in Africa and in India and thinking about the global South more generally, because we saw cases of this in Brazil and Thailand, uh, gender and sexuality politics really came to the, to the front of a lot of recent political struggles, um, especially with, as the, you know, as the kind of global right emerged at the same time, gender and sexuality became really key. And I think here in the United States, we've seen this as well. You know, we could easily make the argument that a kind of fragile masculinity was underpinning a lot of support for Trump, I'd say. And I think the clearest symbol of this to me was in the flags that many Trump supporters were flying around the time of the, the recent election that featured Trump like in a fake like bodysuit did you see pictures of those? He was like, it was like, it was like Trump had all of these huge muscles that he obviously didn't have. And he had this big gun. And it was just like this, like Trump is this er symbol of masculinity or something like that, which like, I mean, he's not really, you know, but then, but they had this image of him just as like this big, strong man moving forward. So I think we, I think we really saw this um, underpinning a lot of what was going on and with right-wing support around Trump. If you think about, you know, the tagline, like, make America great again, right? This is a reference to, you know, an American past where men had jobs and women were at home taking care of families. So does the expansion of social media, this really close to the fingertips connectivity that people have, does this add another layer to how these panics arise? And I'm thinking about how I use these devices and I see women all over the world who are making names for themselves, doing all sorts of different innovative and interesting things. And it's partly due to their ability to access a huge crowd through social media. Right. Because the gender panic is all about women having more power and women having more resources in relation to men. Right. So the perception that women have more resources um, than men do. And I think that that probably does become stark as women are using social media both to get resources or to broadcast the resources, economic opportunities that they've had. And I'd also say, you know, the question about social media is interesting too, because often the way that these panics flare or the language in which they flare is this kind of anti, especially in the global South, is in this kind of anti-colonial rhetoric that suggests that progressive gender and sexuality politics are you know, an imposition from the West, or they contravene kind of, you know, local uh, gender norms, local sexuality norms. But really, what gender and sexuality theorists have found is that this idea, this anti-colonial rhetoric is itself kind of directly linked to the Vatican and to Pope Francis. And so, you know, the Catholic Church has to get its messages circulating as well. So I, I wonder about how, you know, the flip side of that is, right? So we have like women empowered on social networks, but I think we also have identical rhetoric circulating the globe that comes from the other side as well. It's a little bit of a can of worms to include some of the social media and the interconnectivity. I think it's really interesting that you're bringing up the role of the Vatican because that's such an old, long-standing ideology uh, about the roles of men and women. And it gets extremely complicated, 
especially now that you have all this interconnectivity and all these many ways that people can get their messages out. So social media now, everything circulates really quickly, but the church, right, had, was like the original transnational organization, the original multinational organization, because you had everyone kind of reporting to, to the Pope and through the bishops and then through their entire infrastructure, they had a way of disseminating messages. So I have another question for you. And, you know, this series has really been all about engaged anthropology, you know, and there's many different models for how anthropology might do applied research, how it engages with communities. Um, But for someone who has studied interventions and development that is specifically about this, how do you view the application of anthropological research? What would your vision be for an engaged practice? Yeah. Well, first, I would resist the idea that engaged anthropology is taking anthropological methods, ethnographic methods, and just kind of putting them to the service of um, health or development organizations. Although I know that is, you know, happens. Like, I think that is kind of maybe where that definition sits. I don't know. Is that how you would think? I mean, what do you think about that? So are you thinking like about the sort of community-based model in some ways? Um, Yeah, a little bit. Or I feel like I hear ethnography kind of get tossed around a lot in development spaces and in global health spaces. And really, I think what they mean is qualitative research, like let's do a couple of interviews, and then we've engaged the community or something like this in our project. The way that I think about it is perhaps it's maybe the difference between thinking about emic edict kinds of points of view versus a project that from its inception is collaborative with the communities where the project takes place, right? So on the one hand, there's the emic edict sort of idea that like, you know, if only we knew how the people we intend to intervene on are thinking about this, then we'd have the words, we'd have the tools to really sugar the pill, so to speak, right? And that's very different from the model that, well, we have we have ongoing relationships with these communities and from the inception of the research questions, we're gonna collaborate with those communities. And I'll do a call back here to um, my conversation with Taylor in episode two, and then my conversation with Dr. Mandy Agnew in the previous episode where they're saying like, well, engaged research is really more about that initial relationship and conversation. And then ultimately, doing a project that produces something that is useful for and desired by the community that you're actually working with. I mean, that's a great definition and a great um, distinction between like a good engaged anthropology and a, and a, a less good one. I think I would just add to your definition too, that for me, I feel like, well, first, I feel like all anthropology is engaged and applied and I think that insisting that some of it is not and some of it is, is a disservice to both anthropological theory and to the application of anthropology to real world problems. I think what ethnography really can do for us, which to me, this is at the heart of engaged anthropology, is take what we're learning from the people with whom we're spending the most time and use that to like actually theorize from there, right? So before I was discussing like this idea of detoothing and this practice that I saw in the transactional sexual economy, um, people were concerned about it, but also like the young women that I worked with were actively talking about doing this all the time. Like they'd be on the phone and they'd be like, oh, I'm gonna go pull this guy's teeth. I'm gonna go get money from him. I use that idea to think about 
the development industry also, like both what the development industry is doing to the people in whose lives it's supposed to intervene, but also how people engage with development industry, right? So being able to get money from development, but not really give them what they want either. So, you know, and for me, this is a way to kind of really be thinking with the people that I spent the most time with and that I learned the most from. That's one thing I'd say is that like all anthropology is and should be engaged. And the other thing I would say that I think ties more neatly with what you were saying before too, is I feel like engaged anthropology involves a commitment to letting yourself be transformed by the work that you're doing. One might approach a problem or one might see a problem and start talking to folks about it, start learning about the deep history of where the problem came from and so on. And you you should probably walk away with a different understanding, a different vision of what that problem is, right? So I, I think for me, I, I like thinking about this like commitment to to being able to be transformed by the by the field work. Great. Well, it's been a really interesting conversation with you, Dr. Moore. A lot to think about, a lot to chew on. Before we get going, I just wanted to ask, you know, are there some specific places where people can access your work? Most of my work is available on academia.edu. Thanks again to Dr. Moore for making this an awesome final episode of our engagement series. This episode concludes Series 5 of A Story of Us. Our next series will begin in the autumn of 2021. We have a very exciting theme planned for next fall, so please stay tuned. In the meantime, stay leery out there for some of our bonus episodes that will be coming out during the summer. If you didn't get a chance to listen to our engagement series or any of our past seasons, be sure to check us out on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at a story of us OSU. If you want to learn more about anthropology, follow the Anthropology Public Outreach Program at Ohio State APOP. That's at Ohio State APOP. You can also learn more about APOP by visiting our website at u.osu.edu APOP. There you can learn about our many outreach programs. You can also contact us about putting together an outreach program for your organization. Just send us an email through the contact form on our homepage. Thank you again to all of you, our listeners. If you've enjoyed a story of us, please leave us a glowing review. Your feedback truly makes a difference. Thank you.